Just now we'll look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to use this brown pew Bible in front of you, would you turn to Hebrews 11? I understand that those of you who were here last week, you learned how to listen to a sermon. So you're going to be set up well. I'm going to expect a lot from you, but for the rest of us, just we'll, we'll try to do our best. Uh, when you found that, Hebrews 11, we're going to be reading. We'll start at verse 1 just to get the context, and then uh, verse 23 is where we'll start digging in. So it's on page 851. If this brown pew Bible you're using, would you stand? And I'll read this passage for us together. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 1. This, is, of course, is his definition of faith. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then verse 23, this is where we'll spend our time today in the following few verses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. If you don't know that story, this is Exodus 2, where uh, Pharaoh's final solution to the Hebrew population problem is to decree that all male Hebrew babies should be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. Verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Again, continuing in that story, if you know it, uh, Moses' mom makes a little uh, dinghy for him uh, out of this basket that's made waterproof. She puts it in the Nile River, basically saying, hey, you didn't say how we were supposed to put him in the river. And he is found by Pharaoh's daughter who adopts him into their family by God's providence. But of course, 24 says he, he refused to be known as her, daughter, as, as her son when he grew up. Verse 25, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me quickly uh, pray for us and just offer up this time now, ask the Spirit's work in us as we uh, learn from what he wants to show us here. Spirit of God, I just ask you to come once again. We have sensed your presence here this morning, and I ask you to continue to be present here in a powerful way. Uh, God, to speak to our hearts, to, to break down walls and hindrances, whatever it is that would keep us from hearing what it is that you want to show us this morning from your word. Uh, give us those ears to hear. Give us uh, open hearts and minds to receive what you want, to show us and to be obedient to what you call us to. God, we trust that your word is powerful and that it changes lives, it changes hearts. Uh, nothing that I am going to do here this morning has any power, but your word has power. And I ask that it would uh, just flood this place this morning. Uh, change us and transform us. Work in amazing ways we couldn't even think to ask. And as I always ask, eternal God, move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. How, how do you, in your everyday lives, assess the value of something? What, what uh, standard, what criterion do you use to assess the value of things? I think uh, for most of us, we'd probably be willing to admit that our assessments of value are often based on what we can see, what's in front of us, 
We look and we assess, okay, what's, what is and what is not of value to me? Everything from, you know, choosing apples in the grocery store, which one you're going to pick to, at least initially, anyway, choosing a person you might want to pursue romantically. We're looking on the surface, what do I see? How are they, what are they like? We're using what we can see, and yet what we also know, probably, is that what we see on the surface is often not uh, uh, an ultimate, it's not the best way to determine the value of something, at least not in all of its entirety. And so, because that's true, I bet you everybody in here has got a story of some time that you didn't choose something that later on turned out to be really valuable. Why didn't I, uh, why didn't I buy a house in Vancouver 10 years ago? Or, <laughs> um, or you, you did choose something that later on you were like, whoa, that did not have the value I thought it did. Uh, we've all got stories like that. Uh, an example of this you might remember is from, I would say, one of the best in the series, uh, Indiana Jones, the third film, Last Crusade. Remember when Sean Connery was his father? That film, when, remember, he gets into the cave where the uh, Holy Grail is, this, this relic that is said to be the cup that Jesus himself used in the Last Supper, and whoever drinks from it will receive eternal life. Let's just, let's just go with that for a minute. That's the story. But of course, when he gets in the cave, it's not just one cup. There's a whole numerous amounts of cups to choose from, and the only instruction he's given is choose wisely. Choose wisely, or as we might state it for our purposes this morning, uh, uh, choose not just looking at the external appearances alone. Because while drinking from the true grail brings life, drinking from the false grail will take it from you. First guy, he, he tries what he thinks is the best choice. He chooses poorly. He chooses, you know, the most ornate, beautiful chalice, and it is reduced to dust in a matter of seconds when he drinks from it. But Indiana is different. He chooses the plainest, most ordinary-looking of cups, the cup of a carpenter, he says. And after drinking from that cup, is told, you have chosen wisely. Which, of course, means there can be further films after. <laughs> We're continuing this teaching series we began a while ago through, through Hebrews 11 called By Faith, uh, looking at these incredible stories listed there of men and women from the Bible who were enabled to accomplish seemingly impossible things in the course of their lives and the means by which they were enabled to do it, each case was faith. By faith, they did it. And in the passage this morning that we're looking at now, moving from the life of Abraham to the life of Moses, what we see is that Moses, along with his parents before him, are called to make some significant value judgments themselves in their lives. And although the choices that they make on the surface, at least to us, look foolish, perhaps, the Bible is going to say that they're actually incredibly wise. It's going to say, you have chosen wisely. Now, the Hebrew, uh, in Hebrews here, you might have seen it, that the word that it uses to describe that assessment is regard. Regard. This is a word that uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as to consider something, to appraise something. And you see it there in, in verse 26. It says, he that is Moses regarded, he considered, he appraised, what? Disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Now we're going to get into why Moses would make an assessment like that as we dig in here, but, but, but in presenting these seemingly foolish assessments, 
uh, that Moses made, that his parents made as being examples of the positive examples of faith, I think already what we're seeing is that what the Bible regards as wise assessments of value is not always going to be in line with what we think are wise assessments of value, according to our own just finite human wisdom, which I think is something critical for us to learn. That's something we, we absolutely need to learn if we're, if we're really serious about this whole following Jesus thing because as we've seen again and again through Hebrews 11, we see it in our own lives. The things that God calls us to lots of times can be really hard. They can involve suffering. They can involve sacrifice. They can involve uh, humbling ourselves. Now, God promises to walk alongside us in each one of those things. He promises to empower us to whatever he calls us to. And as we've also seen in all these examples, although, like, however difficult they are, the things that God calls us to are, are not to harm us. They're for our good. And yet, for many of us, when the good things that God calls us to, the paths he calls us to walk, uh, threaten our comfort, uh, threaten our safety, threaten the things that we really find security in, most of us will regard that choice as foolish. We'll regard it as having no value, just out of hand, and just say, well, that's, God couldn't be calling me to that. He would never ask me to sacrifice this. And as a result, we sacrifice things all the time of great value, eternal value, for temporary short-term pleasures that, that neither last nor can truly satisfy us. So in order to help us learn to rightly regard the things that God calls us to and to see obedience to Him as of infinitely greater value than anything this present life can offer us, I want to look at this passage today just in two ways with you. I want to talk about the appeal of short-term pleasures and the greater value of eternal reward. The appeal of short-term pleasures, the greater value of eternal rewards. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again with me? Could you find that passage again? Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 23. Follow along with me. I want you to see this as we look at what God wants to teach us about developing a regarding faith. A regarding faith. <clears throat> so let's talk first of all about the appeal of short-term pleasures. The appeal of short-term pleasures. And can we just... Can we just be really honest with each other? It's a small room. We're in church. Let's be honest with each other and just acknowledge that the pleasures of this world, what, what verse 25 calls the pleasures of, this, of sin, are appealing. Can we just say that? They are, right? Like, the, can we not do that hyper-spiritual thing where we just pretend that like extravagant spending, uh, looking forever 21 when you're 51, uh, uh, uninhibited consumption of, of food, Drugs and alcohol, sex, we can't imagine why anyone would choose to indulge in those things. Oh, yes, you can. You totally can. Uh, uh, like that, that, as an example, that, that college kid at the frat party who's like eight drinks in now launching himself off a balcony onto a fold-up table is not thinking in that moment, you know, I'm really hating this right now. Not sure why I'm even here, actually. This is miserable. He's having an amazing time. Now, he's not going to have an amazing time the next morning. But in that moment, what he's doing is totally appealing to him. It's totally appealing. That's why he chooses it. That's why we choose it. It, it has appealed to us. And now, I'm sure, you know, you're hearing me say that. You're like, wait, wait, wait. I thought, doesn't the Bible say, um, like, drunkenness, uh, uh, 
sex outside of marriage, uh, uh, vanity, these things are all sinful things. Doesn't the Bible say that? I would say, yes, absolutely it does. But what the Bible also says is that things like food, wine, money, sex, our bodies, these are not evils to be avoided. They're, They're God's good gifts that he created to be enjoyed. And so things like gluttony, drunkenness, fornication, they're sinful because they're the result of the abuse of those good gifts, using them wrongly in ways that are harmful to us and to our souls. That's why I totally appreciate just the raw honesty of verse 25. Look with me there. It tells us, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of of sin for a short time, the, the pleasures of sin. Now, yes, we're also being shown here a value choice that Moses makes that on the surface seems to be foolish. Uh, why would he choose that knowingly? But in order to demonstrate the significance of the choice that he makes, isn't Hebrews also highlighting the truly appealing pleasures and enjoyment that sin offers us in the short term? Revealing to us, once again, we see this again and again, the decisions to to follow God, to be obedient to him, are not easy. This choice wasn't easy for Moses. It wasn't something that just came without any cost. And the point, hi. The point really in the end is this. Think about Moses' life. Think about where he is as a, as a, a son, adopted son in Egypt. He had a super good deal going on, didn't he? His, his setup was amazing for a Hebrew there to just be in, the, in Pharaoh's house, living as an adopted son. It's probably not difficult at all to understand how what he had going on would have been infinitely greater value than choosing to, to willingly, knowingly be identified with God's people and suffer and be mistreated. The choice seems foolish. And then when you look at verse 23, look there, even more than Moses having to sacrifice, I don't know, the, the keys to mom and dad's chariot and his cushy bedroom with the flat screen TV and the ensuite bathroom, the cost that Moses' parents were willing to pay was their lives. They were risking their very lives to hide Moses in his infancy. I mean, I don't know about you, staying alive, that seems really appealing to me. Not something I'd want to easily trade away. They seemed to think that was the right choice, which it actually makes this passage difficult to understand when we first read it, because although we'd likely admit, okay, yes, sin can be very appealing, but we need to resist that. We need to trust that God's way is better and choose that. We might admit that that's true, but we might also say, but I don't see anything particularly sinful going on here. What do you mean, the pleasures of sin in Egypt? Like, what's, what's Moses doing that's sinful? Um, is being rescued from a basket out of a river, is that sinful? Being adopted into a wealthy family. Sinful? No. Which, you know, it makes us pretty much, you know, we're looking at the back of the book for the answer here because while we might understand the comparison Hebrews is trying to make between the pleasures of sin and being obedient to God, the charge doesn't seem to fit the description. How, how can Hebrews contrast Moses being mistreated alongside God's people with the short-lived pleasures of sin in Egypt? And I think the answer, very simply, is this. Because offering up his place of power, surrendering his his position and prestige in Egypt, lead God's people out of slavery, that was the thing that God had called him to do. That's what he'd been called to do. 
And so, as theologian Philip Hughes notes, the great sin for Moses would have been to disobey his heavenly calling and choose instead the fleeting pleasures of ease and affluence in the palace. Ultimately, just choosing to preserve his own comfort at the expense of an entire people group. And this is something really important for us to understand ourselves in our own lives today and to learn because this can be confusing, but we need to know this. Because we can be saying, I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to avoid these things that I know are sinful. I'm trying to do the the right thing, but we can forget the fact that sin in God's eyes isn't just not doing bad things. It's also failing to do the good things that he's called us to. parallel example of this would be helpful to us is someone like Jonah. God calls Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, call the people there to repent. Is there anything sinful about going on a trip? Anything sinful about going on a cruise? You know, that just so happens to be going in the opposite direction of Nineveh. No. But what makes Jonah's action sinful is that he's failing to do the good thing that God's called him to do. I called you to go here. You're going here. Again, preserving his own comfort and racial pride, really, at the expense of an entire people group. Or or just, you know what, as Jesus' half-brother James says very simply, James 4.17, If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Pretty hard to get around that. And yet, this is where it gets tricky. This is, this is, if you think about Moses' situation in particular, he would have had the perfect justification for refusing God's call and just continuing to cling to the privilege and, and affluence that he knew in Egypt, which, by the way, is the very thing we do. Uh, every time God calls us to sacrifice something that's of value to us, something that, that's our comfort or security in life. Think about it. Moses could have easily reasoned, God, okay, I hear what you're saying. Just hang on a second. Just, maybe you haven't thought this through. Look at where I am right now. If I leave my position of power and prestige here, I can't help your people anymore. I lose all ability to affect change. I lose influence at a governmental level. There's, you can't actually, this probably isn't you. This must be something else I'm hearing. You wouldn't call me to give this up because I know you care about your people. They can't be helped if I leave this behind. And in a sense, he would have had a powerful precedent to think of because his ancestor Joseph also was a powerful ruler in Egypt and God used him staying there to bring about the the redemption of his people. Now, there's lots of reasons why God called Moses to something different. The situation was different. The circumstances were different. But the point at the end of the day is this. All the pleasures that this world offers us things that we regard as sinful things, and things that we regard as just everyday things, the gifts of God, whatever they are, the, the pleasures that this world presents to us in a thousand different ways, they are appealing. They are captivating to us for lots of reasons, and we'd be foolish to pretend that they aren't. And yet what Hebrews is showing us here is that ultimately, whatever the, the appeal of these pleasures, whatever they offer us, it, you, can't, you can't hold on to it. They're They're temporary. They're short-term pleasures that that you can't keep. They're not eternal. However highly we might regard their value, and they do have value, as Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed when Christ returns. Just, Just to say this, 
As Moses and his parents clearly demonstrate, what our passage is showing us here, first of all, is that by faith, we need to develop a different standard of assessing value in our lives. Faith will enable us to develop a different standard of developing and assessing value in our lives. Not at all saying that there aren't good and beautiful things that we value, only that we need to regard eternal things as having a greater value. Which is the last thing I want us to look at together as we talk about the greater value of eternal reward. The greater value of eternal reward. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever seen that show, uh, Antiques Roadshow. Maybe is that, is that even still on? Because I haven't had cable for a lot of years. I don't know. But if you've seen that show, you know that what this is, is people bring in stuff. They bring in old furniture, trinkets, heirlooms, that, you know, just been gathering dust in their house for years. And they bring it in to be assessed by an expert. And there's all kinds of different stuff that happens. Sometimes they think they got this awesome thing that's worth so much and it ends up like your treasured furniture set is basically worth like, you know, what you get at Ikea. And then you bring in, you know, this thing you think is worthless and the guy's like, oh, this is a treasured heirloom. You, this is worth thousands and millions of dollars. This is, you know, kind of the, the fun of watching the show to see what, what's it going to turn out to be? What's the value? The point is, they, they bring these things in, though, to get an outside assessment from an expert because they recognize they don't have the ability on, on their own to assess the value rightly. I think this is valuable. Is it? I'm not sure if this is valuable. Does it have value? Or they, they, they know they can't assess it on their own, so they come in to get an expert to do it. And I think what we see in our passage this morning is that faith... Faith is the thing, faith is the expert, if you will, that helps Moses' parents and then himself to properly assess the value of these things in their lives that, from an outside perspective anyway, appear to have way less value than what they're being asked to exchange for. It's the thing that enabled Moses' parents, in verse 23 here, to see hiding their son and risking their lives as of superior value to obeying Pharaoh's edict and protecting their well-being in the present. It's the thing in verses 24 through 26 that enabled Moses to regard disgrace and mistreatment alongside God's people as being of superior value to all the treasures in Egypt. And it's not as explicit in in the example of Moses' parents, but I think we clearly understand how Moses could be enabled to do this, make this seemingly foolish assessment at the end of verse 26. Look with me there. Again, uh, uh, Hebrews has just told us that by faith, Moses regarded, he, he appraised disgrace for the sake of Christ as being greater value than all the treasures in Egypt. And the reason he was enabled to do that, it says, because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was looking ahead to his reward, which hopefully will remind you of what we looked at just a few weeks ago in Hebrews 11 verse 13 where we saw in the life of Abraham as it relates to faith enabling us to welcome the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to us in the future now as though we had already received them. Faith enables us to see those future blessings as things we possess now. And honestly, when when you look at the way Moses and, and all the saints listed here in Hebrews 11, the way that they assessed value in their lives, you come to see that it's only faith. It's only faith that that could ever have allowed them to regard the future eternal promises of God as something superior to what they had in the present. Faith would have to be the thing 
that enabled them to do that. As well as, like, it, would, it would have to be the thing that enabled them to see those gifts as greater, first of all. And it would have to be the thing that enabled them to see those future promises as not something they were risking. Like, man, I, I hope I'm going to have that when, I'm, when I reach it. That there was something that, no, I actually have it now, even though I'm not holding it. It is mine now. Faith is the only way that, that would, they would even be able to do that. Like, just using Moses' life as an example here. Choosing disgrace. Choosing mistreatment by being identified with God's people at the cost of all the wealth and privilege that he had as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, that would have been an incomprehensible choice. Not least of which to his adopted family. They would have just been looking at him like, what do you mean you're choosing that? Why would you leave this? Why would you leave us? We've cared for you all your life. We, we offer you everything we can. Why would you leave this? Because think about it, man, the Egyptians, they were the superpower at the moment, right? They were the nation of prosperity and power in history. What other nation could offer Moses more than what they could? What other king could give you more than what I offer you? And then beyond that, we also know historically that according to their belief system, you could take, you could take all the wealth and treasure that you'd accumulated in your life with you into the next life. That's why Pharaoh's tombs, they found filled with all of their treasures, including, at sometimes, their families and servants who they buried in the tombs with them, alive. You take it with you to the afterlife. You can. It can come with you. And yet what Moses was enabled to see by faith was that, yes, although Egypt might be the superpower right now, although the wealth appeared to be something you could take with them into the next life. What Moses saw by faith, first of all, was that there was a power that far exceeded the power of Egypt. And that what God had promised in the true and better promised land to come, that was something that could be possessed for all time. You could truly have it for all time, not just buried in a tomb with you. And that made that future promise as of truly greater value. You know, a simple way to think about this is like, it's like somebody spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, years of their life, to stand in that line where you get to hold the Stanley Cup for a minute and get your picture with it. We would think that was foolish. We'd be like, why would you spend all that money and all those years of life to hold the cup for a second? You've got to put it down again. You can't take it with you, and yet don't we do that all the time in our lives? Years of effort. Tons of resources to gain things that we're just going to have to give back. You, you, you're not going to take it with you. And for you and I today, this is exactly what we need to learn. This is exactly what we need to be enabled to see by faith, or we're never going to be able to have our, our hands freed from the, the, the temporary short-term pleasures of this world. These things will continue to seem of greater value to us. We'll never be able to hold our possessions, our families, even our own lives loosely and with open hands, understanding that while these are good gifts from God that have value, they're not worthy to be compared with the ultimate fulfillment that God promises us when our lives come to an end, and they all come to an end. Sorry to be the one to tell you. By faith to even choose the path of loss, choose the path of 
disgrace and mistreatment for the sake of Christ in this life, trusting that our eternal reward in the next is of infinitely greater value. Like the missionary family in Incheon, Korea, we read about in history, who were, were told arrested and put on a people's trial. They dug a large pit and the pastor and his wife and his children were put inside the pit and told, you can escape death if you will simply renounce your faith in Christ and never speak of him again. And they chose suffering. They regarded suffering with Christ as of greater value even in their lives. And as the shovelfuls of dirt slowly buried them alive, the mother was reported to say to her children, Hush, be brave little ones, for tonight we will dine with the king of kings. What a, what a foolish choice. Stupid. Wasteful. What a waste to, to wasted lives that could have gone on to do much good for the kingdom. If they could have just spoken some false recanting, okay, I, I, I don't believe in Jesus. I won't talk about him anymore. And then gone on to, to do whatever. What, what a wasteful, foolish choice. Or was it? I mean, we've already seen in this passage at least two examples of choices that looked foolish from our finite human perspective, but that the Bible presents as wise, faithful examples of looking ahead to a greater reward than anything this present life can offer us. That's why Jesus would say to us, Matthew six nineteen, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, or moth." And rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jim Elliott, a missionary pilot who himself was martyred along with his fellow missionaries by the very people that he'd come to share the gospel with, said it so well. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. How can, we, how can we ever live like that? How can we live like, like this? Either in really big ways that we're seeing here or just in the more likely in the smaller everyday ways that God calls us to value the good gifts that he's given us in this life, but to, but to hold them loosely with open hands and see his eternal rewards as of infinitely greater value. How can we do it? According to Hebrews 11, we do it by faith. We do it by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ, who 2,000 years ago took off his royal robes, stepped down from his place of power and position, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Philippians 2 tells us, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. Choosing the path, the path of disgrace and mistreatment for our sake. 
for the joy set before him of redeeming men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue. We can live this way by, by regarding him, by regarding Jesus as of the greatest value, the greatest treasure we have, seeing an eternity with him as worth more than anything this life could offer us. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 3? He, has, he listed all of his trophies and achievements and things he'd gained. He said, I count them all as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Not that these things don't have value. But the assessment of value showed him that Christ was of infinitely greater value. Seek to do that. Seek to, as you look at the things in your life, seek to regard the value of everything in your life like that. And we can truly say with the Apostle Paul, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all as we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Why? For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come to the front at this time.